Tom, how you doing, man? Yeah. You're eating. I'm good. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm just finishing off a glazed ham Pringle. Oof. I think glazed ham sounds like when you have a bit of jism down your shaft. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it does. Or when, you, or when it's been, you know, doing the sex and I, it's glazed. I uh, do the sex, I glazed it like a donut. <laughs> I used to work with a guy and he used to call me a ham toucher sometimes. What? He was like, oh, you fucking ham toucher. <laughs> it's a great, I don't know what it is. It's great, it's great. Anyway, nice to see you, man. You too. It's uh, yeah. You bring, you bring joy and happiness to my Mondays. Thank you. Likewise, it's uh, I love doing this show, man. It's great. Um, you know, we're on season two now, and we're nearly to the end of season two. Um, I know we're approaching fast approaching climax. Indeed. Uh, now, Tom, the game we're looking at today, so Guacamole Two, right? Um, you normally get a theme beer for these shows. What have you gone for? <laughs> What do wrestlers sometimes have on their outfits? Uh, oh, fuck it. I don't know. <laughs> a red stripe. <laughs> oh, for God's sake. Bit of a stretch. A <laughs> little bit. Right, let's go for... See, see what you think of this one. I've gone for a dead pony club. Because a lot of it... Okay, yeah. All right. Yeah, it's not as good, is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I don't right. mind was better. <laughs> right. Okay. Let's get this thing kicked off. Uh, yeah, so we're looking at Guacamole too. So now we don't normally... So obviously that 8-bit shit show, what we're here for is to look at uh, gaming history one game at a time. And we don't normally start with sequels on this show. Uh, but this week we are because we're looking at Guacamole 2, um, which is a Metroidvania-style action platformer. It's got beautiful visuals, it's got strong comedic tones, and if you listen to Series 1 of The Late Bit Shit Show, then you'll know that we're st- sort of strong fans of that type of uh, of game after we looked at Shovel Knight. <laughs> I think the reason we're starting with the second one is because this game is not... Uh... It's so crucial to our overall look at the history of video gaming, but we do look at newer games and the way they took influence from old games. And if we're going to look at a new Guacamole game, let's look at the second one because it was more fucking fun to play. There you go. Exactly that. So, um, yeah, and what a great game. A fan, you know, fantastic game. It's so smooth. It plays so well. Um, so this was a, uh, a game developed by Drinkbox Studios, and they published it as well. Um, Shout out Drinkbox, man. Yeah, great, great little studio. Sony need to be buying them up, or should have done years ago when they were supporting the Vita. Yeah, so this this came out across platforms as well. So this came out on uh, PC, PS4, Switch, and the Xbox One. Um, Self published by Drinkbox. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so what well, an absolute gem for that. I hope it's made them a lot of money. I haven't actually looked at how much it's made them, but I hope it's made them a lot. It's Twelve pounds. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> they won't last long then. Um, <laughs> so this game was. Um, it was announced at Paris Games Week by uh, Sony Interactive Entertainment in October of 2017, and was then released in 2018 on the PC, PS4, and Switch, uh, which which actually came slightly later in the year for the Switch, and it only came to Xbox in 2019, Tom, um, and is now part of the Xbox uh, Game Pass. So check that out on PC. It is, and that's where we played it. I played it on PC. I think the the, so the fact this was announced in October 2017, 2017 at Paris Games Week 
People were hyped for it because Guac One was such a hit. And actually, the games they did prior to that were fantastic as well, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But this was a game that there's no mega story to the development of this, apart from the fact that Guacamole One was fucking brilliant. Yeah. And they wanted to do more. They now had a bigger budget. They had a bigger team to work on it. They had bigger ideas. And because, as you often see with sequels, because the framework for the game is laid down, it's easier to then just add to it and build off it. Just make it better. Yeah, mm. absolutely. So, as you say, not not too much to talk about in terms of where this fits in into the context of game history. I think we normally do that on this show as to where a game particularly fits into a, a period of gaming, but it's quite a recent game. So it's more looking at, you know, uh, how it ties into our retro game reviews and things like that that we do. Um, because it's very retro-inspired, isn't it, of course? Um, well, it's a true Metroidvania in terms of the fact that you are in a, a connected world and you have to unlock new abilities and collect new abilities in order to go back and access different routes through the world to then collect more abilities and blah, blah, blah. So it's it's Metroid-inspired. Um, and it's, it's as is Shovel Knight, it's a kind of perfect reinterpretation of an older genre. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you're right to bring up Shovel Knight again because in Season 1 we covered that, which is a very very uh retro inspired games it's, you know it's got full of references and ties to other games and this is uh another game which just has that brilliant feel of those retro games but making it modern um, i think shovel knight's got more of it it's more of a love letter yeah and it, it wears is. it more on its sleeve um whereas this is very much i think this is more its own thing Whereas I, I praised Shovel Knight for taking its inspiration and making it its own thing, but it does wear those things on its sleeve and as a badge of honor, whereas Guacamole is very much just doing its own thing. The the bit where it becomes very self-referential is in terms of its reference to its own previous game. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and all of, we'll talk about that slightly uh, in a bit, but like some of the stuff that it goes on to reference about some of the uh, media that came out surrounding its game as well, and some of the reaction to its game is is really really clever. So, uh, background development, Tom. Um, so, as we said, developed and published by Drinkbox uh, Studios. They are a Canadian developer based in Toronto. Um, can, can I ask you? Had you heard of Drinkbox before this game ad? I had not heard of them. No, had you? Okay, so yeah, I just want to give you a bit of my context with Drinkbox here. When the PlayStation Vita came out, I was planted firmly on the end of Sony's cock. <laughs> right and it, like i was such a huge fan of the vita i bought it on launch day. i was so happy that they were making this thing and also you will remember back to that era it was the resurgence of independent game studios was in full swing because things like unity and different game development engines were making it possible for small teams to compete in in that market and Drinkbox were a studio that supported the Vita right up until its very end. And some of their games that we're going to mention here were absolutely kind of essential to that system. And right from when I first got the system, we're playing Tales from Space, right to the end when Severed came out and we're still using the touchscreen elements and stuff of the Vita when all the other developers had kind of abandoned it. I just fell in love with Drinkbox as a studio because they just stuck to their vision and stuck to their guns. So when Guacamole 1 came out, I was in love with it, but then the knowing that Guac 2 is coming out, I was so hyped because I just love this studio and everything they do. That's amazing. That's like a real testament to, you know, as you say, giving game, smaller games developers a chance to show what they can do. Um, 
and how and, far and they, they can they go. They stood by their fans. They stood by their support. They knew their supporters were on the Vita, even though the Vita was a very small marketplace, especially for Western developed games. Mm. Um, you know, this one like a JRPG series, which flourished on the Vita, but they they stood by people wanting good content on the Vita, especially when we talk about Severed in a bit. Well, they as a studio, they were only founded in 2008 as well by uh, three former employees of Suedo Inter- Pseudo Interactive, uh, which are closed earlier that year. So it's Chris Harvey, Ryan McLean, and Graham Smith. Um, and as you say, their first game in 2011 was called Tales from Space uh, about a blob. Now, have you played that, Tom? I've played both, and I think I've platinumed both of these. Amazing. Uh, or no, they, no, they 100%ed. They didn't have platinum trophies, I seem to remember. But uh, they were both on the, um, ported to the Vita, uh, and both of these games had absolutely incredible... Nice. So much fun and just so charming and awesome. And they're like three hours long or something. Well, I've had a look at like some of the screens from them and some of the a couple of videos. They, they do look absolutely brilliant to play. Like they're really satirical and just like so referential to like sci-fi tropes and Well, so they're sc- side scrolling puzzle platforms for anyone who hasn't played them. Um they're about a race of interstellar gelatinous blobs that travel the universe. And the PS Vita. The PS Vita is one of the fucking love that console. Yeah, Same shapes. And I might buy one. <laughs> Just sold all my retro gaming shit. But I might <laughs> buy one. Uh, that's such a you thing to do. So, right, I want to play that game. I'm going to buy the console. Uh, yeah, but man, I fucking love so many games on the Vita. I never had one, you know. I never had that's one. one of the best consoles ever made. Man, like without a shadow of a doubt, OLED screen. Like it was held back by so many things. Like the um, I mean, it's a good time to talk about the Vita because it's the first time it's gonna it's come up, and it's the, the gonna be a long time before it comes up again. But it was held back by Sony insisting on its proprietary memory cards, which was stupidly expensive, like hundred quid for a memory card. Jesus, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> like, ridiculous. Like phenomenal prices, whereas they could have just put a fucking micro SD card in it. Yeah, I, I probably would have sold more if that was the case as well. It, w- um, it would have been a completely different... I think it would have been a much bigger success story. Well, I mean, look at the Switch now. Yeah, quite. And look at how interactive it is with the consoles as well. Like, how you can use it with the console. It's amazing. Um, the V is incredible. Have you ever used one, even? No, I've never used one. I've just I've seen, you know, plenty of stuff about it, but I've never actually had one. Absolutely incredible little system. It has such a strong library. And games are still coming out in Japan on the Vita. Right. Oh, okay. Okay. So... Really, they could still have a lifespan. They could see a resurgence. You never know. Like, are they compatible with PS5? I wonder. I don't think there's any interaction with PS5. PS4, they had remote play and things like that. Yeah. I yeah. would absolutely love to see Sony. Like, if Sony revisit the handheld spaces, they want purchase for me. Like, without ah, a doubt. That's huge. <laughs> oh, nice. More than, like a, more than like a PS5. I would cho- If I could choose one, I would choose the, the Vita 2. Yeah. I okay. mean, mainly because I have a gaming PC, but. Yeah, yeah, no, quite. But, um,. No, that's that's. This is the first time on the show that we've come across games that have really released on on that platform. Um, so, yeah, shout out to Sony for uh, for the Vita, bring it back. Um, so th- those are the first two games. So it's Tales from Space about a blob, and then the follow up uh, that came out uh, in twenty eleven, and the follow up then in twenty twelve was Tales from Space: Mutant Blobs Attack. Equally uh, as dope. So go check those out if you haven't already. Um, and before we talk about Guacamole. The other game you mentioned there, Tom, was Severed. Um, mm. And this is a first-person action-adventure game for the Vita. It's like a first-person dungeon crawler where touch controls. It's so wild for the studio to take a risk like this, and it paid off. Like so It I... wasn't a huge commercial success, but critically it was. How does it play? Like, what's it like? You basically navigate your way through a dungeon in first-person and slash at the screen, a bit like Infinity Blade on mobile. Um, okay, that's interesting. Which was... Infinity Blade, was that... 
that had a big developer behind it. Because um, that was going to be the mobile game that changed mobile games. It probably actually has a place in the Ape Shit Show, Infinity Blade. We should, yeah, we should probably look at that just because of its importance. Well, we're going to have to look at Snake and Angry Birds and like they're, they're important games in the history of game development. Infinity Blade was someone like Epic or something like that. It, it is was, Epic, yeah. It's yeah. Epic, yeah. I was going to say, yeah, fucking wild, man. Um, and that was going to be like, oh, the game that proved mobiles could do graphics. And it was quite good. And this is that. You're blocking and attacking by swiping the screen. Yeah. But it's in a Sugar Skull-inspired Day of the Dead right. aesthetic. Yeah. Okay. So um, you can which see. obviously we see in Guacamole that these guys love that classic Mexican Day of the Dead aesthetic. Not just aesthetic, but the culture and the, the, the ideas around it. Everything to do with it, man. It's a great, great setting for a game. Um, there's so much you can do with it. So and when we move into Guacamelee, we see how they use some of the the mythos of the Day of the Dead to actually become gameplay mechanics, which is incredible and so well done. Well, we will talk about that. Um, but you can see the studio's got like a clear preferred art style as well. That vibrant and sort of colourful cartoon animation that they've got. Because looking it's beautiful, at- man. There's some of the most beautiful games I've ever seen. All of their games, indeed. Yeah. So let's talk. Um, let's talk Guacamelee then. Um, so the first game. It was released in 2013 on the PS3 and again on the Vita. So as you say, fan service is still there. Um, but it later got some enhanced editions as well in 2013 and 2014 on other platforms and then came to Switch in 2018. Um, and don't be put off by this game being a 2013 game. This is like, it plays perfectly the first Guacamelee still. It's one of and those. you should absolutely play both of them. Yeah, I haven't actually played the first one yet. Um, so I'm incredible. guilty of that. So I'm, I'm going to go back and play it uh, at some point. Um but as you say, Tom, earlier, that this game was really well received, and the devs obviously received a lot of plaudits for how well uh, how well it was made, how well it went down. Um, and already, as you said earlier, we're m- talking about making a sequel in an interview with IGN in 2013. So you can just see how popular it was. Did, did you play it at the time? Yeah, I did. Um, because I was so aware of Drinkbox, and I was very much into following what game devs were doing what at the time i was a little bit up gaming's ass because of i was so in love with the vita and different bits and pieces i was really tracking what studios were likely to release games for it i was buying up everything and anything on the vita like soul sacrifice is a really great game back then um and yeah i followed it i bought i bought guacamole and it's severed looks incredible but it was a bit to me what i what i didn't like about it at the time is i kind of went ooh. They're using mobile gaming as a cue here. Is this a game that they're developing so they can release on mobile? And are they going to go the? Are they going to become a mobile developer? You know, with the Vita clearly being on its on its way out at that point, I didn't know if they'd make the shift over to full console development or if they'd go mobile. Because yeah. that was a viable platform back then, if you remember. You know, that was developers were going over to mobile as a platform, um, and they made Guacamole, and I played it, and I thought, no, nope, they've made the they've picked their side. And thank God they did. It was a fully-fledged console game. Yeah. And then, obviously, not long after Guacamelee 2 um, came out uh, for the PlayStation Vita again. Uh, sorry, not for the PlayStation Vita this time, but they used the PlayStation... It didn't come out on the Vita, that one, did it? No, no, no. Uh, they, they used the PlayStation 4, sorry, as the base uh, platform. Uh, because yeah, they had the, new... the Vita wouldn't run this game. It's got way too much going on. Well, they had a new rendering engine for it. So, as you say, yeah, would have been too much. Um, they decided that instead of sort of completely switching things up for the protagonist, Juan, who we will meet shortly, um, 
they retained all the moves from the original as they felt they're actually more intuitive than the new ones that they tried to come up with for the sequel. So that's interesting because often you'll see with games like they'll try and switch things up a lot with sequels, but clearly the first game was a hit like it gameplay wise it really hit well and the yeah. second one we talk about gameplay it can get a little overwhelming at some points but there's a lot going on you know at once you've got to sort you of can't think put fast this game down halfway through and come back to it no no definitely not no i played this all in one go yeah once you're on a roll with it you need to finish it because you're going to learn to navigate the game world in such a complex manner that yeah. you don't want to forget and come back and if you're a completionist as well if you want to get all of the stuff done in this game, you have to play it sort of in one block because, as you say, there's so much to learn about the gameplay mechanics. If, and there's lots of optional areas that if you want to complete those, you need to know how to to traverse the, traverse the uh, landscape. So, yeah, absolutely. So there's not much else to say in terms of the development, but that's the background to Drinkbox, where they came from, who they are, and that's our first time seeing them on this show. Possibly not our last. <laughs> <laughs> so nice that Man, leads I like us fucking heroin you can't stop can you that's all pringles i think not just glazed ham like in fact glazed ham's would, possibly put the glazed ham in the lesser the lower echelons of the pringle hall of fame gone what's your favorite pringle flavor that's, that's a big salted. topic ready salted what salted pringles are you mental sour, sour cream and chai which is everyone's favorite Salt and vinegar. Yeah, yeah. I don't... I'm undecided on the Texas barbecue because the flavour's just so fucking overwhelming. It's strong, isn't it? Yeah. So I like the uh, flaming hot ones. They're good. Salt and vinegar for me, all day. And then sour cream and chive. But, uh, Where does the salted sit for you? Low. Like, boring crisps. Like who, People who like ready salted crisps are boring. Fucking boring crisps. <laughs> <laughs> ready salted crisps are the... the they're like the fucking king of the garden of fried snacks. They're, they're the most boring snack. Anyway. You know the best pub snack I ever had? <laughs> Go on. What, what I, was in the Rose, I was in the Rose Villa Tavern in Birmingham. Right. Like a classic, classic pub. Has great chicken wings. And I was there having a jar. And uh, the landlord used to make his own pick-a-lily. Pick-a-lily? Yeah, and he used wow. to sell homemade piccalilli, and he was banging on at me about how fucking good his piccalilli was. And I was like, mate, no one cares about your piccalilli. <laughs> what even is like, piccalilli? Explain to people that don't know. What, like anyone that's not from fucking medieval England? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's just yellow, like radioactive chutney. Goo. It's yeah. really mustardy and stuff. And anyway, he was like, I'm going to give you a free sample of my piccalilli as a side order to a complimentary snack. Right. I was like, bestow these snacks upon me, good landlord. So he bought me battered, and made of his own homemade batter with a local beer, battered black pudding with homemade piccalilli. And was like, have a plate of that, son. Right. And it worked because I left with a jar of piccalilli that I bought. Fucking hell. Wow. And it turned out it turned out when I got home that actually it was the batter black pudding I liked. <laughs> <laughs> Not the fucking pickle in it. <laughs> he fucking duped you there. Yeah, he duped me there, man. He tricked <laughs> me with some fat blood fried in fat. <laughs> that classic trope. <laughs> yeah. Man, shout out to right. Roseville Tavern in the jewelry quarter on the corner of Frederick Street and 
whatever the other water something street. I used yeah. to live on that street. When that's a fucking bang of a pub. When the country reopens, we shall meet there for a beer. And some battered back pudding. Maybe. Maybe. Cider pickle lily optional. Uh, okay. Guacamole then. Moving swiftly oh, on. Man, they actually have some fucking good guacamole. <laughs> really? Yeah, they oh, do. Right. Like and shit. Man, it used to be my local. I was fucking loved living in Birmingham. Perhaps they can sponsor the show. So maybe get in touch. Uh, story-wise, let's talk about what, what we need to do here to give people a full picture of um, of the backstory to our protagonist, Juan Aguacate. Uh, we need to talk about the first game first. Um, start at the beginning and to give some context about how he ended up, where he is in the second game. So, Tom, do you want to t- you've, you've played both games, so take us through the story of, of Guacamole. Yeah, and there's a surprising amount of story in there, but you can just fucking ignore it and enjoy the uh, like perfect platforming and adventure mm. exploration. But Juan is your... He's a, an agave farmer. And um, on the Day of the Dead, the Dia de los Muertos, he's going to meet with his childhood friend and love interest, El Presidente's daughter... Lupita, and an even an evil charol skeleton named Carlos Calaca attacks the village and kidnaps her. Juan is in no way matched to, to Carlos, and he is killed by it. So he's sent to the land of the dead, as does happen, especially on the Day of the Dead. And it's a parallel world, and this is one of the key gameplay mechanics where we, we end up being able to control flicking between the two worlds, which is fucking incredible. Um, and there he finds a mysterious luchador named Tostada, who actually in the second game it forms a co-op, a, um, co-op partner because you can play the whole game in co-op mm-hmm. she gives Juan a mystical mask which transforms into a powerful luchador for those who don't know luchador is like your traditional masked Mexican wrestler um, and brings him back to the world of the living the game then follows Juan's battle to rescue his beloved uh, Lupita and stop Calaca's plan to sacrifice her in the ritual that would unite the worlds of the living and dead under his role <clears throat> so he, you go through the game and he confronts these guys like X to Bay <laughs> Um, I'm not sure that's how you say it. Uh, the first of Kal- Kalaka's lieutenants, he ends up transformed into a rooster and brought back to human form by another rooster with mysterious powers. <laughs> and after defeating Extubay, she reforms, revealing that Kalaka was once a great rodeo man who broke his arm just before an important competition. Sold his soul to the devil to have it healed in time for the competition, but just after winning, the devil enacts his payment and drags him to hell. But with Extubay's help, he deceived the devil by having him transformed into some kind of rooster as Juan having helped him against Kalaka in order to restore his power. So you can see, like, the, the story is is there if you want it, and it's heavily, heavily... It's so charming, it's so crazy. And, like, when you're going around talking to the characters, because the story is told by... As you find with side-scrolling sort of RPG straight Metroidvania games, you've got villages. Mm-hmm. So you've got the open-world dungeon that has all the baddies and the different areas you've got to get to. And then you've got the villages where you can get upgrades and different things and, and then talk to people. And yeah. that's how the story unfolds. That's it. So you've got your hub in sort of each area. Um, so, yeah, Tom, t- just round us off there with with where we get to. So, yeah, so he gains, Juan gains power and he confronts and deletes the rest of Kalaka's forces. And then Juan pursues Kalaka to the altar where the ceremony is being held to link the two worlds and do all that kind of stuff and defeats him. But he doesn't arrive in time to save Lupita. So in the normal ending, Juan returns to his village and lives life in peace until re- reuniting with Lupita in the afterlife and the mass disappears. Now that's fucking heartbreaking that he he doesn't manage to save <clears> and he comes back and he just waits and then eventually he dies and he meets her. But in the true ending, attained if the player clears all the hidden trials and blah, 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 Lupita is actually revived by the power of Juan's mask 
which then breaks apart and the two return to the village together where they get married. And that's the ending which leads us into Guacamole 2, which left me somewhat confused when I started Guacamole 2. Right, so did you not get that ending? No one gets that ending. Like, let's be honest, generally people are not... Well, I think, I don't know, tell me about you, when you play games, do you go and do all the challenges and get the hidden endings? Uh, I didn't know there was hidden endings in this until I started doing this research. Well, hence they're hidden. So... Um, uh, I I mean, for this game, I tried to do as much as I possibly could for Guacamole 2, but I don't think I got everything. Um, but what, what they do do, and I just don't think I paid enough attention to it to know, is at the start of Guacamole 2, they intro, the prologue is a recreation of the ending of the first game to explain the true ending, but I just didn't really pay much attention, I don't think. Just wanted to get into it. <laughs> so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, for sure. I mean, the, the big thing in the setup of the second game is where you, you meet... Uh, the main antagonist. Um, so, I mean, the game. Well, the game skips forward. Yeah. So, so basically, you're, seven. you're yeah, you're seven years in the future. So, um, you, as you say, you have got the simplified version of the the game's uh, first game's final confrontation with Kalaka, leading to that true ending where he saves the life of Lupita. Um, so we get we catch up with one then where he's married with with two kids. So he's got you know full nuclear family. Um, and Juan's, you know, he's got a bit of a dad bod going on. <laughs> he's growing out of shape. Um, haven't we all at this age? <laughs> but uh, So you start to see then things are starting to happen in the background. So some black clouds start to appear in the village, followed by his old mentor, Uai Shivo, appearing to tell him that the entire Mexiverse, which we haven't said yet, but that's a great name, um, yeah. is in danger. Uh, so what? Uh, Chiva does is he brings one through to a portal called uh, the Darkest Timeline. And this is a, the game you, you're playing through different areas. And not only is this parallel universes, there's different timelines as well. It gets like, it's intentionally wacky. It's all over the place. And you, you're never quite sure quite what's happening. Um, it's all explained to you in bits and parts. But it's, as you say, the gameplay makes it, you know, compelling the story is there if you want it but it's the gameplay that you're there for um but in that timeline juan and lupita were killed by calaca um who defeated another luchador called salvador now here you go salvador in the seven years since has become corrupted by the power of his mask and he he now wishes to collect three relics so he can access the sacred guacamole in the realm of el Otramundo and become all-powerful so he's sort of uh become this uh massive antagonist for the game now um but and by... he's just like this great big dude in a poncho who's hench as fuck and a mask <laughs> he's got this persistent cough which he just puts down to eating too much guac all the time it's like oh yeah i don't know why he cough. Why, why they decided to add that in like he's always coughing like he's got fucking tuberculosis well i think it's what the intention was may not be actually correct but i think it's when he starts collecting these relics he starts causing the timelines to destabilize which will mean the end of all timelines if he's not stopped and i think him holding onto those is actually corrupting him. So he's like, it's affecting his health. Um, but he keeps putting it down to guacamole, you know, some, some guacamole that he's eating. Dodgy guac. <laughs> so. Man, I'm going to make some fucking guac. I make a killer guac. Do you? Do you want to know my recipe? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> it's, it's probably not correct. Some, one of our Mexican fans is going to be like, uh, that sounds a shit, man. <laughs> fucking gringles. <laughs> like, it's uh, a couple of avocados. Couple of cloves of garlic, half a juice of lime, and a little pinch of coriander. Yeah. Loosely, you need to like not puree it too fine. Like put it in a chopper, then spread it on some toast and put some sliced tomato, salt, and black pepper. 
guys. That sounds pretty banging. You're making that for me when I visit. That's uh, That's a fucking lunch and a half, that is. Hells, yeah. There you go. But you're not only getting gaming knowledge on this, you're getting recipes. What more fucking, what more do you want? Um, Okay, so Juan is led to reunite with Tostada, who we met in the first game, who is the guardian of the mask. Do you know what Tostada means? Toasted? (laughs) Yeah, it does. It means toasted. Okay. Like if you when I was in Spain last year, I was laughing because I saw tostada something on the menu. And my Spanish mate Alejandro was like, uh, "It means toasted what?" And I was like, "Tostadas pescados." And he's like, "What toasted fish? What?" <laughs> man, you live an interesting life, Tom. You seem to know I someone do, in every no, country. No, I just <laughs> so I do. I do know someone in every country. It I'm feels like it. Go. I'm going to Russia next summer with fucking Vlad. We're going to a farm. Vlad. <laughs> Tom, come to Russia. It will be good for you. He's actually from Kazakhstan, but he's taking me to Russia. Very nice. Uh, so w- when he's reunited with Tostada, Juan uh, begins to travel the world to stop Salvador and his underlings from collecting these relics that will ultimately destroy the world. Underlings. <laughs> but they do ultimately fail, and Salvador gets the sacred guacamole. However, Juan does eventually defeat him, which destroys Salvador's mask and results in his death. The timelines are restored and the Mexiverse is saved. But this does actually, sadly, prevent Juan from returning to his own timeline. So he can't get back to his wife. So uh, he actually recalls an earlier conversation that you've had where it said that El Ultramundo connects all the timelines together. So he leaps back into El Ultramundo before the the, uh, path, the the timeline portal closes and uh, looks out across the many indistinguishable portals. So he's in some kind of a a space-time continuum type place. Um, type, type place, one of them type One places. of them type places, you know, the sort. You see them every day. Uh, <laughs> now, in the normal ending in this one, uh, Juan's family awaits his return for many years before he eventually appears. But in the true ending, so this is, again, if you get all of the uh, side stuff, like the chicken Illuminati. Uh, you like to clear the chicken Illuminati's crucible and meet the Holy Hen. Exactly. Of course, as you do. Uh, then Juan recalls her advice and removes his mask, immediately identifying the correct portal and returning to his family without delay. So, a lot going on, Tom. I feel like Drinkbox have written themselves into an impossible third game here. Do you think? There's going there's to, there's some, to be there, there is such a thing as too much writing. There is, uh, but I don't think there's anything that... The, the story could go wherever they want. They don't, you know... Yeah, it doesn't matter, does it? Like no. it's, it's, it's actually intentionally ridiculous yeah like they're trying to do as much stupid shit as they can in there there's a lot of funny moments there's a lot there. of drinking went on in the writing room <laughs> yeah a lot of tequila clearly um so that's the backstory that's guacamole one and two uh that's uh basically what's happened and tom let's, let's talk about our time playing this game because i i fucking love this it was absolutely brilliant so we introduced you to the game uh, on unplugged last week and gave you an idea of the flavour of what you can expect. Um, but, I mean, let's just talk about the level design, um, first and foremost, Tom, because it's it's some of the best I've seen. It's so I good. I did a written review of this. Did you? Okay. Yeah. It's on this, on the site, buried away. Okay. So should I just give you my verdict? My yeah, review? absolutely, yeah. Do so it. I said, as a newcomer watching someone play the later parts of Guacamole 2 um, would likely be enough to put you off trying for yourself. However, after a few hours of gameplay... 
you'll be jumping, dashing, and hook shooting your way through a beautifully designed levels, all whilst flipping between dimensions and changing forms between a Mexican wrestler and a superpowered chicken. In fact, you'll be stringing those things together with such incredible performance that you will often smile at your own achievements and abilities as you push towards a conclusion. Empowering, beautiful, engaging, and occasionally frustrating, Guacamole 2 is funny and self-aware tale of honor. It has a few genuinely poignant moments whilst it only... Uh, whilst it only made me laugh a handful of times, it made me smile consistently. If you have never played Guacamelee, then this is a, the place to start. If you love the first game and are ready for some more, then you won't be disappointed with what's on offer here. That's yeah, that rounds it up perfectly. So, so that was what I said about it, man. Uh, I did think that was a, there's only a few real laugh out loud moments, but I did spend the entire game just charmed and smiling and. There's a good your mum joke in there, which made me laugh. <laughs> but um, they they throw in like stupid like really ridiculous childish humor in there which which i love so um it's very charming and it's it's not too over the top um but anyway let's talk about the 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 areas that you you discover in this so the first place you visit is the agave field um so all of these maps are kind of designed very much with verticality in mind so you can drop down through the levels quite often to hidden areas um and they get progressively bigger as well as you get through the game. So they do. The game just gets more and more massive as you go on. And it's a complex sort of the best way I can describe it is the areas you so the seven sorry, eleven areas you go to. So the Garvey Field, Pueblucho, Los Manglares, Templo de Jade, Villa Chula, the Badlands, uh, Templo de Obsidiana, Infernio, the Prison El Corazon, Isla Bonita. Uh, and the Templo de la Serpiente. And it's worth saying, was the first game is maybe six hours long. This is more like 12. At least 12. I think I took and, 13. And f- yeah, and for me, it runs a little on the long side. There is, Yeah, because there are certain things that you have to do in each area to be able to progress, um, i.e. getting the upgrades that you need to get past some of the obstacles. So, I mean, each area gets progressively larger, as I said, and the best way I can describe it is that there's a network of tunnels that you need to get through each with their own obstacles that you have to then backtrack yourself to to find the right skill or upgrade to beat. So, yeah, the vast majority of this game is underground. Yeah, there's a lot of it which you have to drop through uh, corridors and tunnels and, and things like that. So um, I think it's best if we talk about the types of upgrades you can get because... Like, yeah, because the game is essentially, like, like Metroid, it is vastly underground with a few overground areas. And you're going to come across... It's really, really clear how it does it. You've got coloured blocks is the general thing that you can't get through. Now, there's certain things a high platform requires. Instead of having a traditional double jump, you do have a traditional double jump, but you could double jump and then use your uppercut to gain extra height. So you've got that kind of basic platforming um, or platforms that are too far apart. So you might double jump and then do a, a rush, a dash attack, which will give you an extra distance on your jump. But then there's also a whole series of coloured blocks um, which you need a certain ability to punch through. So red is an uppercut. I think yellow is the headbutt ad. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, blue is like a dash punch. Then you've got special moves and things. And this also translates into enemies that have colored shields that you need to attack them with a certain type of move that co- with a corresponding color to break the shield, and then you can finish them off. And the shields regenerate after a certain amount of time. So that's the basic principle of the upgrades. Yeah. And then all of those abilities can be upgraded to give you you can now do two uppercuts or exactly and each of those special moves is assigned to a button so triangle will be your headbutt for example uh x will be your uh 
dash, punch, square will be your uppercut, and circle will be your frog splash. So it's. Oh, I love the fact it's called frog splash. Well, it's a, it's a classic wrestling move in uh, luchador wrestling, isn't it? Well, I, I don't know. Eddie Guerrero does it. Come on. Buddy Watson, who our good friend of the show, will know exactly what I mean when I say frog splash. Okay. Um, <laughs> he, he's, a, he's a wrestling fan. So, uh, yeah, so th- those, as you say, are the sort of upgrades you can get. So you've got like a, an upgrade tree, which you... So there's lots of different chests that you can find around the world as well. And you'll find things like uh, life in there, which will upgrade your life bar. Yeah, you get like heart pieces, like Zelda-style heart pieces. And and you get mask pieces as well, which upgrades your stamina. Um, because what we haven't said is that each of these special moves uses a stamina bubble. Um and you've got a certain amount that you can use in each, uh, you know, before it's depleted and you have to wait for it to recharge. It's a really clever yeah, that mechanic. Makes, that makes arenas, whether they be enemies or platforming challenges, something that you have to plan out and think, right, I'm going to execute X, Y, Z, whatever, series of moves to try and get from point A to point B, and I'm going to perfectly time it. So some of them you're going to have to jump off a platform, drop down, travel forwards, and travel up without touching any of the sides of the cave because they're all covered in spikes. Exactly. Yeah, and you're stringing together all of these moves in perfect timing to navigate your way around this world, and it's something that becomes so intuitive after a long period of time that you can just read this world map like you're reading a language. It's, <laughs> that is a really good way of describing it. It really is because you see these little cues. So you've got like another cue, which is like you've got almost a, like a a grapple onto area, so you can you can jump onto the wall and you know you can grapple it. But then you get a skill later on, which makes you be able to run at walls. Um, or there's a skill where you can press triangle to hook onto these sort of arrows, which then fire you forwards. There's so many things like that that you can just look at that area and go, right, I need to do X, Y, Z and, and get across it. Um, but fuck me, is it challenging later on in the game? Like, But incredibly satisfying when you nail it. And it's also very generous with respawn points and checkpoints. I'd say earlier on in the game, it is later on. Some of the fucking areas I had to re- redo, it took me about an hour just to do one special area. Like, fucking hell. But um, right, think... and when you, if you do the optional challenges, yeah, that's what I was doing. Yeah, there's one with like a, a series of bombs that you have to explode in a certain. Oh, okay, that, yeah, that's a cunt. Yeah, no. I... So yeah, they've, all got, they've got a timer on them. Yeah, exactly. And if you don't hit them exactly right, because you can't use a special ability twice until you land, so you can't reset that ability until you hit the floor. So if you get it wrong and those bombs explode, you have to go right back to the start of that section. And it, but you're it, talking it, optional challenges at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, these are, yeah. As I said, I'm a little bit of a completionist sometimes when it comes to that sort of stuff, but um, you can just skip it out. But overall, I think the, the, the design and the skill in designing the world is phenomenal. Like, Well, the other thing, big thing to mention here then is the trans-dimensional flippage. We haven't touched on that yet. Good point. Yeah. Um. So the other mechanic is that there's two simultaneously worlds that exist in any area, the world of the living and the world of the dead. And certain elements exist in one or both worlds. That could be platforms or enemies or uh, dangerous obstacles such as vines or spiky vines. So the most simplest way this um, renders itself is you have these kind of thorny vines and you'll get an area where you have to jump and you'll one of them you can like roll dodge through it but then you'll have to transition into the other dimension where the next one doesn't exist to to dodge that so that's fine to start with later on when you're doing like platform challenges as complex as what we described before 
and you're having to flip through dimensions to make sure the correct platform, you're in the correct world of the platform when you go to land on it or of the enemy, it gets absolutely wild. Like the amount of things your brain is asked to juggle. Yeah. In the later parts of this game. But the funny thing is, is it's all doable. By the time you get there, you're ready for it. Like, like yeah. it does, it does get borderline sadistic at points. It does, especially when you've got those enemies that explode into like four, like ten other enemies on screen at once, and then you've got some in one dimension, some in the other. Because when they're in the other dimension, you can see their shadow, their outline, but you can't hit them. Um, so you know they're there, and they can strike. You know, yeah, they, they can, can strike you. you, but you can't strike them. So it's like it becomes this absolutely frantic dash to take out you know the, the stuff in the one dimension, and then get to the next one. And it's constantly slipping between the two. So for it's it's amazing. As you said earlier, I think it's a really interesting point that you said that watching it, watching that later game, you'd think, I could never do this. It looks impossible. But by the time you get there, they, they build you up in such a way, over 12 hours, that by the time you get to that end game, you're fully equipped to deal with it. You're pulling off some moves that you like. I completed areas of that game and then sat back and like fought fucking impress myself there, so <laughs> yeah there's a great sense of achievement back. fuck yeah yeah great sense of achievement in this game um but it's like that balance it's not like 1988 nes game difficult there's no yellow devil in this motherfucker it's like it's all doable um what one other thing i want to say about the the upgrades and the mechanics on that is that you meet some great characters in in doing your upgrades as well shout out to Flameface, who's an enemy in the first game but my favorite character in the series so he's like a well, as the as it says on the tin, he's got a flame for a face. <laughs> yeah. But he runs a bar, a tequila bar, um, and you go there to learn new up, uh, upgrades for your wrestling moves. Um, and he sort of gives you this guy that you just have to beat the shit out of and learn the combos. Um, it's really clever, and that's he sort of teaches you how to how to then use each upgrade that you've acquired. So that's that's a really good little mechanic as well. Um, but you also earn gold throughout the game. Um, which can be used to purchase various other upgrades and things like that. So it's a great system. Um, There's everything, a whole bunch of costumes and shit as well. Like everything interlinks really well. Like nothing is wasted in that game. I'd say there's nothing that you collect which is just useless. It's all very very well thought out. So shout out to the devs again for pulling it all together and making such a fantastic game. Tom, let's let's round off with some reviews and well. Just some some details on the reception that this game got when it came out. Take it through. Yeah, because Drinkbox, remind me now, have done nothing since. Of since. Not that I'm aware of. So Drinkbox Studios, yeah, so their last game is Dwackamele 2. Yep. Um, I'm just having a look now if they have got anything else upcoming that we know of. I'm not sure. Um... I mean, it's only been like two years, three years now. It's 2018. So I'm expecting something right round off them. Do you think there'll be another Guacamole straight off the bat? No, no. Okay. I don't see what, I, I really struggle to see where they could go with another one now. I don't know. I think they could round it off as a trilogy. I think maybe... they could, but what the fuck are you going to add to it? It's got so, like, I don't want more buttons in this game. They couldn't add more features in terms of what you can do, but they could just make... I don't know. They could just make more of the same if they wanted to. But I guess, yeah. We'll, we'll wait and see on that. But, um, like, Guacamole 2 is so well-received. It's, it's difficult, isn't it? Because do you then risk that legacy by making another one? Um, 
But it basically landed at 8.5s across the board. Which is a big score. Really big score. Yeah, big fat score, that is. And um, I would I would personally give it higher. I think it's a, it's a 9 out of 10 for me. Yeah, it would be right up in the 9s for me. It's an excellent, excellent, fantastic, brilliant game. It was nominated for some awards as well, uh, for control design for a 2D or limited 3D game. Um, and also game franchise action at the National Academy of Video Game Trade Reviewers Awards. So, wow. yeah. Award show. prestigious award show there but you know it's a small studio they're not like your AAA developer they're, they're doing their own thing and they're getting recognised for it they're a really great developer and I'd love to see them go get the success that someone like Housemark has got I, I could really see them as an internal either Sony or Microsoft studio they could fit to both platforms couldn't they easily um, but I think having some support like that would be great but then the fact that they've self-published their games they've support the Vita, they've done all this kind of stuff and they've seen the level of success critically and commercially on these games is so cool. And it's such a shout out to what well-designed indie games can do. Now, I think they've had a bit of right place at right time. Yeah, um, potentially, I think yeah. Tales of Space did very well on the Vita because it was one of the better early, early available games. Mm. Like that's maybe a game that wouldn't have got so much um, spotlight in apart from when the Vita came out and IGN and the likes of that were doing their top 10 games to buy on the Vita in like the first week it came out that was like invariably on there because there wasn't many games right it's not okay. to say it wasn't good it's just it was getting some some spotlight that made people aware of drink box yeah no that's that's fair and I mean <clears throat> I, I love seeing smaller developers doing doing really well like this so let's hope they keep uh, bringing us absolute bangers like guacamole too um, so that's that's it for our roundup of Guac Two. I hope you enjoyed the show um, and Guac One because we're not going to do an episode on Guacamole One. The, no, everything that's in this episode, it's it's one and two really. Essentially, yeah, you're not getting anything different if we go back and do one. Um, so I guess uh, let's let's round up. What's coming up next uh, on uh, season two of that Eight Bit Shit Show? We've got uh, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater next week, which is going to be an absolute banger. Banger. Uh, and then following that is our series finale, which we will end on an absolute monster of a game, Final Fantasy. So tune in for those. And we've got then, as, as always with that 8 Bit Show, we'll be having an after party. And we've got some big things. And you're all invited, bitches. Yeah, come along. Have a beer with us. Di- socially distanced and COVID safe. Of course. But there's big things coming. We're going to talk about... Well, let's hope we're not saying that at the end of season three. Oh, fucking hell. Yeah. Fingers crossed. But... You know, we'll see where we are, but we've got some big things coming at season three. We've got, uh, we're going to go through, we're going to be introducing our ratings system for the games that we've looked at so far as well on the after party. So tune in to that. It's going to be a banging episode. Tom, thanks for joining me. Okay. And as always, if you've enjoyed the show, head over to happyhourgaming.net where you can find links to all episodes of season one and two of that 8-bit shit show, along with a whole host of other gaming and movie related content and a link to get involved with us uh, and chat to us on Discord. You can also find us on Twitter, Happy Gaming Hour. And if you're feeling generous, buy us a beer on patreon.com forward slash happy hour gaming. Thank you for listening. Man, that was very professional. You blow me away. I've got to step up my game for the Happy Hour Game podcast. <laughs>